Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Get fast in-home Wi-Fi that you can control with Xfinity XFi. See who's online, pause your Wi-Fi, or even set a curfew for the kids. That's simple, easy, awesome. Switch to Xfinity today and get a great offer. You'll get fast speeds and the best in-home Wi-Fi experience with Xfinity XFi. Plus, enjoy great coverage throughout your home and on the go. Even manage your in-home Wi-Fi network from anywhere when you download the Xfinity XFi app. Go to Xfinity.com, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit an Xfinity store to switch today. Restrictions apply. The Last Line is a completely free podcast that takes a lot of time, effort, and hard work to make happen. So if you'd like to support the show, then please head over to patreon.com forward slash the last line. Thank you. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever time you're listening to this podcast. My name is James Alban and you are listening to The Last Line. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, If you like the show, then please do subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're on. Leave us a rating and review. Um, Follow us on the various social media accounts, including uh, Instagram, where you can follow me on at James Albon or at The Last Line Podcast. Follow me on Twitter at James Albon. Go over to Facebook and find our podcast page, uh, The Last Line Podcast. So much fun awaits you. Thank you for joining me this week for my conversation with Sir John Curtis, political science and professor of politics at the University of Strath. Clyde and Senior Research Fellow at the National Centre of Social Research. He's also a a, a constant figure in the BBC election coverage where he makes his predictions on the results each year. I spoke to Sir John at the start of this week just after the first of the Conservative leaders' television debates. Um, so we talk a little bit about that, but there's a lot of conversation about Brexit. So if you're fed up with Brexit, then this may not be the podcast for you. Although I encourage you to listen as it may challenge some of your um, thoughts on the matter. I don't think it's going to change your mind as to whether you voted Remain or Leave. And I, I wouldn't suggest that this podcast would be one to, to make you do that. But... There is an interesting um, conversation about the polarisation of the country at the moment and also the the thought processes behind um, both sides of the debate. But first, Sir John's take on the first of the Conservative leaders' debates from the night before. Well, I, I, I had, um, uh, I mean, a couple of observations. One, one is, you know, clearly it was about two subjects. One was about Brexit and the other was about various aspects of domestic policy. Um, but it was on Brexit where the candidates locked horns and uh, they were challenging each other. And there was something beginning to uh, comprise a reasonably structured conversation. Um the domestic policy, there were lots of proposals and particular concerns raised about education and social care. Um, Michael Gove revealing himself to be an extraordinarily liberal on uh, law and order. Um, there wasn't really much of a structured conversation, except what, of course, I think was interesting about it was how all of these, well, all apart from Dominic Raab, I guess, uh, but the remaining of the, the candidates were wanting to emphasise their plans for public spending and improving public services. There was virtually no discussion about how you improve the economy, uh, let alone much discussion about the need to continue to maintain uh, fiscal control in order to eventually balance the books, which I think is still meant to be an objective by 
2022 or at some point around that point, um, which I think kind of tells you something about how the center of gravity inside the Conservative Party and the center of attention and focus has indeed seems to have shifted away from lowering taxation and uh, from uh, fiscal rectitude uh, towards concern about public services. Um, so although on the one hand, you know, all but Rory Stewart were clearly committed towards uh, delivering a, a relatively hard Brexit, um, there I think signs there of the Conservative Party perhaps moving towards the centre on domestic policy. And of course, some people think, stroke, hope, stroke, anticipate that the same might be true of Boris Johnson, but we'll have to wait to see what, if anything, Mr Johnson has to say about this subject um, in the coming days and weeks. Um, so is the shift uh, sort of a bit more to the centre on the domestic policy front? Is that, because um, uh, obviously I've gone down a rabbit hole of watching conversations with you, um, you know, your interviews, etc., over the last couple of days. And, um, and you talk, um, there's one interview where you talk about how Brexit's not a left or right issue. It's a socially liberal Absolutely. versus socially conservative yep. issue. Um, yep. is, so is the shift to, 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 towards the centre from the Conservatives based on that, that, that they've picked up um, a lot of the sort of UKIP voters. No, 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 no. I think I think the point is these these are two these are two largely separate debates. Um, so, uh, that, that, so, so I mean, I, I mean, the point about um, you're quite right that um, the point about uh, Brexit is it isn't a left right issue. This is why it's so difficult for both the Conservatives and the Labour Party because they are much more comfortable uh, talking about and discussing left right issues because. Um, these are the issues upon which they are basically organised. Um, and uh, Brexit causes serious internal um, divisions. Uh, so point one and point two, then the other reason why Brexit's been so difficult for them is that it's a very difficult issue upon which to compromise because there's very little public support for compromised positions. Um, so that's, you know, that's one story. Then, uh, you know, domestic policy... Insofar as uh, we're going, to, there's a discussion about that. That well, there, there, there are two aspects to it. One is, in part, it's a left-right issue, and it's always likely to be true. Other things being equal, that the Conservatives are going to be in favour of a somewhat smaller state than the Labour Party. But it's also a thermostatic issue. In other words, it's an issue where public attention tends to shift in response to uh, recent change. So. When in the 1980s and 1990s, the Conservatives attempted release to control public expenditures, albeit with varying degrees of success, uh, gradually the public became much more concerned about the state of public services, particularly about waiting times in the NHS, the state of the schools. Um, and by the time New Labour came to power, there was a very clear public demand. That they wanted better public services and they were not quite so concerned about lower taxation. It took a while for the, for the Labour Party for the penny to drop. But eventually it did, and they then uh, proceeded to engage in one of the biggest increases in public expenditure uh, of any post-war government. Um, but then, uh, as this begins to proceed, and as indeed waiting times came down and the standard of education in schools in England tended to improve, then public concern shifted back again towards being rather more concerned about low taxation. And then with the fiscal, the fiscal crash then kind of reinforced uh, that mood. And so we shift back um, by around 2010 or so to being pretty much as fiscally conservative as we were in the early 1980s. But now we've reacted, begun to react again. We're not back to where we were in the 80s and 90s, but we've reacted back. And I think, you know, the Conservative Party is uh, to some degree responding to that thermostatic mood, which is one whereby people are now beginning to be rather more concerned about public services. But, you know, I mean, you know, I've just been looking at this. I mean, attitudes towards public uh, taxation and spending and whether you're a Remain or a Lever are very, very weakly related to each other. So the, these are essentially separate debates. Um, and, of course, one of the reasons why you did not get as much in the way of locking of horns is that it's not as anything like a divisive issue inside the Conservative Party. I mean, yes, there's something of a debate between, I suspect, Rob and Johnson versus the remainder about the relative priority of these things. Um but because the because at the end of the day, left-right issues are something that organise the Conservative Party. There's going to be less of a debate than there is over Brexit, which is where you know, the divisions are so much more manifest. I think why I um, sort of wrongly made that connection is um, because you talked about how throughout the Brexit vote, with 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 voters going to Labour and Conservative who didn't yes. necessarily usually. 
fit within that Labour and Conservative bracket because they were voting based on what they wanted to achieve with Brexit. Um, you, yes. you talked about how the sort of the parties, their their sort of who they thought that was their core had had sort of changed. Um, you said you said about like Labour, um, you know their their core, what they think is their core is is the working classes, and they've actually picked up a lot of yes. middle class graduate, yes. you, you know, young. Yes, that I think that's where I made that connection in terms of the. Yeah, sure. No, no, absolutely. So it, it, it affected the nature of the electoral coalitions for the parties. Um, and yeah, so the Conservative Party certainly picked up um, voters who are uh, from, on the Leave side, some of whom are relatively left wing, but some of whom are also relatively right wing, because the point is, there isn't much relationship between whether you are a Leave or Remainer, and, and your views are, are, are on these things. And yes, the Labour Party in particular gained ground more amongst social liberals, amongst younger people, university graduates, etc. And the point we were, I was, I am by no means the only person doing this, that numbers were making in the wake of 2017, is that on the one hand, the way in which the Conservative Labour Parties dominated the affections of the electorate seemed to suggest that we had the restoration of a traditional two-party system, when in fact you looked underneath the bonnet and you went, well, hang on, actually what they've managed to do is to um, articulate the remain and leave side, but that creates potentially rather vociferous coalitions within these parties. Um, two years on, that's kind of become rather painfully obvious. Um, so um, it's that, um, you, know, event, you know, there was always a question mark, well, look, hang on, if we're going to organise politics around Brexit, then it would make, it would seem to make much more sense for it to be organised as a battle between, on the one hand, the Liberal Democrats, and on the other, a Nigel Farage's party. Let's just use that term for the moment. Um, 2017 suggested that you know, this wasn't going to happen. The Liberal Democrats were still weak. UKIP collapsed. Well, two years on, we are back to now a situation where you know, the Liberal Democrat vote is now virtually entirely Remain vote. It's become more of a Remain vote um, than it was back in 2016, 2017. Um, the Brexit vote virtually entirely a Leave vote. So now we've got a situation where instead of the polarised extremes of Brexit, and they are well-populated polarised extremes, the polarised extremes of Brexit being uh, articulated through Conservative and Labour support, on the Leave side, they're being articulated very firmly through Brexit. On the Remain side, there's now divided between Labour and the Liberal Democrats, but much more evenly divided than it once was. So you're now, but so the point is, the Liberal Democrats and the Brexit, well, we don't know much about the Brexit party, but certainly we know about UK. Um, they, for them, left-right issues are difficult, right? They tend to be internally divided on them. So you've seen, for example, how the Liberal Democrats have oscillated historically between, you know, Paddy Ashton, let's increase tax and have better public services. Then we have the Orange Book Liberals, and they've come up with a much more uh, centre-right strategy under Clegg. And now they've tended to kind of wander back again and saying we should have, we should, we should spend more. So left-right issues, you know, are not something on which they uh, they tend to divide because are not consistent. And it depends who's in charge of the ship. Um, Whereas, you know, on social liberal versus social conservative, they're all happy. They'll talk about human rights and uh, 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 people's freedom of expression and civil liberties and immigration to the cows come home. That's comfortable territory for them. And, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, with taking opposite views, the same is true of, of, of UKIP story Brexit. But UKIP voters were as likely to be left wing as they were right wing. They I mean, not least UKIP voters tended to be, indeed, it's also true of Leave voters. I've literally just been looking at this today. Um, Leave voters tend to be suspicious of big business, tend to be suspicious of management, which fits the broader fact that they tend to distrust corporate life. But they don't trust the state, because they don't trust the state, they also don't necessarily uh, are particularly favorable towards redistribution. So they, they think society is, is too unequal. They think business is too powerful, but they don't want necessarily the state to do anything about it because they don't trust the, trust the state either. Right. So they just don't trust anyone. <laughs> they just don't trust anyone. Well, yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, you trust the people, of course, insofar as they are populists. You trust, you trust the people and you trust those who uh, uh, come up with a populist message. Um, so on populism... 
Um, it seems to be sort of back at the, you know, everyone's saying there's a rise in populism at the moment with Trump and Farage and Brexit. And why is populism on the rise again, do you think? Well, insofar as it is, um, I mean, the, the, I mean, if we take the various um, uh, uh, elements to it, so um, if, if essentially we focus, well, I think I'll, I'll take two aspects to it. So we call it, we tend to call it, I mean, Matthew Goodwin and Roger Eatwell quite nicely call it national populism, and that's kind of quite a useful label. Um, so, and the point, I think the national matters as well as the populism, indeed, one might also want to say socially conservative populism, but it's not all of it is socially conservative. So the point one is that it's about how a liberal elite, which is perhaps often ca characterized as an international liberal elite, which um, is often thought to have close connections to the world of international finance, um, that how uh, that elite has organize things in such a way that the ordinary people lose out and they lose out potentially in two ways one is culturally um, because of the impact of immigration which is one of the part consequences of international capitalism um, they also they will tend to feel they lose it economically now in part that's the story about about the financial crash but they will also tend to you know they will, uh, this also feeds into the arguments about how the uh, profits from capitalism have flowed much more easily to shareholders and to those at the very, very top of the executive pile, as opposed to the general public, who have not seen much of an increase in their living standards in recent years. So that raises questions about the whole, you know, social democratic um, uh, uh, fabric, you know, which is about taming capitalism in order to redistribute the, pro the proceeds of capitalism to the whole of society. Well, that project seems to be in trouble. Um, and so, and it's national populism because these are people who are looking for control, right? They're looking for control against the winds of international capitalism. They look to sovereignist solutions for, for protection um, against uh, uh, those winds. So they want to see control of immigration. They will perhaps in some instances uh, will certainly want to avoid, you know, not be part of a big, megalith, um, well, they will see as a big megalith is not necessarily true in reality, of course, but, but something like the European Union, which seems remote, which really does seem to be being run by a very Europhile uh, elite with which they have very little contact, very little understanding, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's all of that. And you can see how, uh, so in part, you know, this is just a, a part of a broader argument about how we run international capitalism and the extent to which we may or may not need to regulate it more than we have done in the past and to do so differently. Um, and it's also um, uh, an argument then about, um, you know, the immigration consequences and the cultural consequences, you know, of which Brexit, you know, just fits into all of these themes because it raises questions about sovereignty, it raises questions about the cultural consequences of migration, and it raises questions about the, the economic success of international organisations, because the European Union is no longer uh, as easily portrayed as an economically successful institution in the way that it was 40 years ago. There's a there's a thing where you talk about you know remainers tend to say that leavers oh, yeah. are, you know yeah. are the ones who don't change their minds about things but actually remainers are also just as likely to yeah. um, which I found really interesting because I think I'm probably guilty of doing that in terms of I've definitely said at some point in a discussion with people I've definitely said well you know if Brexit works because I I was I voted remain. So, you know, if Brexit works out in the end, I'll be, you know, I'm sure Remainers will be happy to, you know, to say that they were wrong. But I don't think that Leave voters will do the same. Oh. The other, like, you know what I mean? So I, so I found it, I found it very interesting to watch your presentation on it and, and 
and see that perhaps, um, yeah, I've been doing exactly what you, you suggest. You talk about how there's a strong, people have a very strong identity with yeah. leave and remain and not particularly yeah. to a political party. There's that graph. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just yeah. wanted to, to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, okay, okay, sure. Well, one of the things that um, political scientists like me have been writing about for many years, it, I mean, this is, this is a story which was first written about in the 1970s, um, particularly in the wake of the rise of the Liberal Party in the two 1974 elections, was about the decline of party identification. So the argument is, and this goes back to work done in the States in the 1950s, which is, and the argument essentially is that voters are, are not just simply rational creatures who you know, read, the, read the content of a manifesto and decide which party's views is closest to their own, but that rather people develop emotional or affective attachments to political parties in the same way as they may also, you know, many people will form affective attachments to you know, a particular national nationality or to a particular religion, um, uh, or indeed, the, the analogy I think is always closest is to a football team. All right, so people, and that, that this then becomes something whereby you have a tribal loyalty, which means that even when perhaps you're not very happy with your party or you disagree with it, then you will still stick with it. But what it also means is that you therefore tend to interpret the a look at the world through a prior partisan lens. So. Just to give you a very immediate example, I mean, I've suggested to you how perhaps one reading of the Channel 4 debate last night was that perhaps the Conservative Party is getting more concerned about public services than it is about taxation. Well, of course, there were plenty of people on Twitter last night from a leftist orientation going, you know, this is not worth watching. These are all a bunch of Tory doom mongers, et cetera, et cetera. They were looking at it in you know, very, very clear partisan eyes, saying, you know, frankly, if you are a Tory, I'm, 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 anything you're going to say is probably not going to be worth my attention. So that, you know, that, that's the extreme end of the process. Um, but the point, therefore, that the, the, it's then argued is that, that, therefore, people will tend to, to use this partisan filter. It operates in a couple of ways. So, for example, um, if you are a Tory supporter, let's say for the purpose of argument, strong Tory supporter, then your views about politics will in part at least, might, might well be framed by um, what the party says. So you now what do I think about reducing taxation? Well, if I'm a Conservative supporter and I hear the Conservative Party is in favour of reducing taxation, then I go, oh, well, actually, that's quite a good idea. So the point is, in part, it operates in that way. But secondly, it also affects how you interpret the world. And when it comes to the debate about remain versus leave, um, just taking an obvious ex example, I mean, you know, there is this virtual unanimity amongst the public that basically we're getting a bad deal out of Brexit and that the government has filed up. And many on the remain side kind of say, well, OK, the obvious conclusion we should draw from that is that leaving is a rather bad idea. But if you're on the remote, on the leave side, you don't necessarily come to that conclusion. You say, hang on, the problem is that people have not, the politicians have failed to deliver and follow the mandate we gave them. And insofar as leaving the European Union has proven to be rather more difficult than we anticipated, well, that just goes to show how closely intertwined we are with this institution. And for me, therefore, this is confirmation as to why we should be leaving, because clearly the European Union is far too powerful an institution, if indeed we are struggling to get out of it. Whereas, of course, if you remain voter, you draw the opposite conclusion. Right? So, um, so there are a few facts in politics. There are simply um, events and information which then gets interpreted. And the point is, most of what's happened about Brexit in the last three years can be interpreted in two ways, at least. And that's what goes on. And it's because of that. Well, well, then, of course, what we've also then discovered is that you know, what, what we've been writing about as a profession is how many fewer people 
have a strong sense of party identity. This is something that's, you know, as I said, started in the 70s, but already largely played through by the late 80s. So only around 10% of the population feel very strongly conservative Labour or whatever. Um, there's a subject about which some concerns been expressed. It's more difficult to get people to go to the polls if they don't have this strong sense of effective loyalty. And we've been concerned about falling turnout. Um, there are also some arguments about how um, if people have a strong uh, attachment to a political party that um, follows the rules of the game, then um, it, it, that, it will then tend to socialise its supporters into following the rules of the game. So the idea that political conflict is resolved through elections and whoever wins the election has the right to govern for the next two years and we have a loyal opposition, etc., etc. All those norms, again, part, so, so there's quite a lot of reasons as to why people go, well, we should be worried about this decline of party unification. Well, now, lo and behold, what we then discovered since 2016 is that Remain and Leave have become very much uh, identities that people identify with. I mean, the data I've collected, around 40% of people say they're very strong or very remain a very strong lever. And one of the reasons why these identities work is that, you know, the fact that people tended to feel strongly conservative or Labour at one point was obviously also tied up with the fact that the Conservative Party was associated with the middle class, the Labour Party with the working class. So, um, therefore, these are, these are parties that also had very clear social identities, okay, and they were associated with particular social groups with which people would also identify. They'd identify as working class or middle class. Now, because Remain and Leave reflects a very major social division, so Remain as very much younger people people with university degree, degrees or, or, or certainly advanced forms of education. On the other side, older people, people with less in the way of educational qualifications. And these are two social groups that are often very easily distinguished from each other and have rather different worldviews on this subject. Then this thing helps also to reinforce that sense of identity because people, the terms remainers and leavers begin to make sense to people because people can often spot a remainer or a lever, a mile, because they have certain social attributes, um, and there is a degree of social antagonism between them. The example that springs to mind for me is um, Alistair Campbell um, voting yes. Lib, Dem Lib Dem in the European yes. election rather than voting yes. Labour, who he's always voted for, and he or Michael Hesseltine, yeah, did, yeah, on the other side of the fence. Well, that's an extreme, that's an extreme example. Yeah. I mean, European elections uh, provide a particular kind of environment um, uh, in, where, in which party loyalties tend to weaken. But sure, one of the things that we know very, very clearly happened in the European party elections is that party loyal. So, I mean, I, you know, I think one needs, needs to regard this. Well, it's, it's a product of the particular environment of European elections where people tend to be more willing to vote for smaller parties. But it's also an indication of the way in which Brexit is potentially disruptive in that um, it's the Alistair Campbell and the Michael Hesseltine stories were illustrative of a broader thing. Um, around a half of the electorate, um, it doesn't matter, there are a number of polls out there which showed around a half of the electorate were voting basically on the basis of Brexit, with those who were turning out to vote. And if you were voting on the basis of Brexit, there was a very high probability you were voting for either you, for Brexit Party or UKIP or the Democrats or the Greens. Right? Much smaller group of people said they were voting for their traditional party, and they tended to vote Conservative or Labour. But the point is that because Brexit was a more widespread motivator than was traditional party loyalty, then in the wake of that, um, their people were less likely to uh, vote for Conservative or Labour. There's also a graph, um, to, I think you put it up towards the end of your presentation, where you say about how the big shifts in opinion about Brexit aren't in relation to, you know, whether you would change your mind voting leave or remain, but seem to be more in relation to the government's competence in relation to, to doing the Brexit deal. 
Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so, so as I mentioned earlier, there's virtual unanimity. There's one thing upon which Remainers and Leavers agree, um, and that is that they think the government has handled Brexit badly. And now I've got 92% of people say that the government has handled Brexit badly, according to ORB. Um, so that's point one, and point two, they're around two thirty. We think we're going to get, we're getting a bad deal, and Remainers and Leavers are equally likely to take that view. So there is it's the one point of consensus between the two sides is that they think the British government has fouled up, albeit perhaps for somewhat different reasons. Um, but perceptions of how bad a deal you're going to get, or how badly the government has handled Brexit do not seem to make any difference to whether people are still willing to vote remain or leave or not. Um, what does begin to matter, and on which there's been a bit of a shift, but it's not a dramatic shift, is whether or not you um, think that Brexit would be economically disadvantageous or not. Um, many a Leave voter back in 2016 went, it won't make any difference. They didn't necessarily think it would make things better. They just thought it won't make any difference. So therefore, we can vote to, you know, we can we can vote to reclaim our sovereignty and control immigration. Um, but um, uh, there's been a bit of a shift, and in so far as the Leave vote sometimes looks a little bit softer than the Remain vote, then it is that because there's been an increase from what about twelve percent to about twenty five percent in the proportion of leave voters who go, actually, you know what, this may not be such good news economically. Um, so in other words, therefore, arguments about process don't seem to shift attitudes. It's only when you get back to some of the more basic arguments, such as whether or not being a part of the European Union is or is not essential to the, to the UK's economic health or not, you know, one of the central arguments of 2016, that you actually begin to see that whether or not people's change their minds or not makes a difference. I mean, it works on both sides. So if you're a Remain voter and you now think, oh, well, actually, you're right, then you are somewhat more likely now to say you would vote leave, but equally on the other side, if you think that uh, actually maybe it may not be economically so good, you're now somewhat more likely to have switched towards Remain. So it's the essential arguments about the merits of European Union membership that are crucial. It's not the argument about the process of a, what now nearly three years of argument about the process. Uh, these arguments don't seem to shift attitudes. Uh, you also talk about how the, the crucial group are those that, that, ha that didn't vote, that either couldn't vote and yeah. that are now of voting age, yeah. or those yeah. that abstained. Um, and it's a common thing that I see crop up in, and it may just be because of the um, like the, the the sort of media outlets that I are probably a, a little bit more biased towards, given my leanings, um, but you do see this sort of common recurrence, or at least I do, that like that um, you know lots of, and I don't know how true this is, but like lots of Leave voters have now died, and those that are eligible to vote may uh, may lean more towards remain. Um, yeah. is, how, how true is, is that? Well, it's, uh, I'm sure, of course, there's, there, there, there's a demographic change going on. And insofar as older voters were more likely to delete to leave, and older voters are more likely to have um, uh, 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 to, to, to die um, uh, at any one point in time, then inevitably um, there's a demographic process of change going on. And of course, as younger voters enter the electorate, and younger voters tend to be more pro-Remain. It's also the people who are entering the electorate are also more likely to be Remain. Now, all of that's there. But, of course, all of that is factored into uh, the polling data that you now get if you ask people how they're going to vote because you can't poll the dead. And once people become 18, they can be interviewed by the pollsters, all right? Um, so, that you know, that's going on. Um, and, sure, I mean, the, 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 the crucial thing to understand... So, so that process is going on, and I mean, there are various estimates about how quickly it would push us in a certain direction, and we, we'll come back to the assumptions behind that in a moment. But in any event, what we know from the polling data is that amongst those Leave voters who are still with us, 85% um, of them or so would vote the same way. Amongst Remain voters, the figure is not much higher. 
and indeed the crucial group are those who did not vote three years ago, you know, some of whom are the ones who have entered the electorate, but this is by no means sufficient to account for all of it. Um, you know, you've got to get to what, um, about, you know, below the age of about 35 before you've got over a half of them. Um, and um, this group, always probably slightly more pro-Remain, has now become around two to one in favour of Remain if they express a view. But and, and insofar as the polls tend to show these days a small lead for Remain, that, that's the principal reason. The principal reason is that those who did not vote three years ago tend to say, yeah, I'm in favour um, of remaining. Um, but these are a relative, this is a group of people who are relatively uninterested in politics, right? Um, and um, therefore, inevitably, there is a question about whether or not they would actually turn out in a referendum. Certainly, when they were being interviewed before the European Parliament elections, they tended to have a very low reported probability of turning out to vote. And so therefore, the outcome of the second referendum, you know, other things being equal, might well turn on um, who turns out to vote. Now, of course, behind this immediate argument about, you know, older voters dying off and younger voters coming to the electorate, um, you know, all such analyses rest on an assumption that people's views are relatively fixed, which, you know, I've kind of said on this issue it is. But... But just beware of assuming, as some people, so what some people kind of argue is, well, you know, what this simply means is that in 10 or 15 years' time, we'll all be desperate to knocking on the door to go back into the European Union because all the levers are off, etc. Um, just remember that the generation of people who voted to leave in 2016 are the generation of people who voted to stay in the common market in 1975. All right. So attitudes are not net, and you know, and that, you know, insofar as, for example, um, immigration is something that young people do, and it's something that older people tend to experience. So we can't necessarily assume, you know, insofar as the arguments about immigration are not just about what you feel culturally um, happy with, but also about real interest, because there are differences of real interest between Remainers and Leavers, insofar as the difference of real interest. You now, younger people are always going to be somewhat keener on liberal uh, views, of uh, having liberal rules on immigration than our older people, because they're the ones who are more likely to take advantage of them. Mm. Um, the, and especially if they're graduates. Yeah. Um, if, one thing about Brexit is that, like, and again, this is just sort of my perception, but it feels like younger people are getting more engaged in politics. Would you say that's that's true? I... There is evidence in British social attitudes that uh, I'm not sure whether young people in particular are getting more like interest in politics. I'd be wary of that. But certainly interest in politics has gone up. So for, you know, we, we, we are British social attitudes ask a question every year since the mid-1980s about you know, how interested are you in politics and you could almost guess before you did the survey that the answer in terms of the proportion of people who said they're very or quite interested in politics would be you know, 30% plus or minus 3%. It now tends to be approaching 40%. Uh, so there certainly does seem to be the case that there are now rather more people interested in this subject. And one, at some point in time, when life is slightly less quiet, uh, um, Slightly less um, busy. I'm hoping to go back to look at that. I, but one suspects, indeed, it is indeed partly to do with the Brexit uh, process. It, 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 it's datable from around 2015, 2016, um, and it, see, it looks as though you know the that intense debate, which emotionally engages people, has also meant that people get drawn to politics. So again, coming back to the story we were talking about earlier. So we used to be worried about the decline of party identification people being more difficult to get to the polls, etc. Well, now we find ourselves in this situation where a lot of people have a strong sense of emotional attachment, albeit to remain or leave. We're now going, oh, Lord, our society is polarised. We're deeply divided. Uh, but of course, and, 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 and the fact that people are engaged in politics is kind of rather passes by. So the question, be careful what you wish for. A very politically engaged society is not necessarily a consensual one. It may be a deeply polarised one. I mean, this is an observation that's been made about Northern Ireland uh, very often. Turnout in Northern Ireland tends to go up 
at points of tension within the province, not necessarily at points of, of relative quietude. Um, so um, we, I think, you know, we've learned something about how there's a, there are two sides to, to, to political identity. On the one hand, yes, it can be a way of socializing people into voting and into the political process. But it's also, but insofar as our social identities tend to define a them and an us and therefore have a degree of um, antagonism built into them, it's just essential to what they are, um, then equally also they can result in consequences that people then begin to find um, somewhat uncomfortable. So would the natural uh, assumption be that once this whole Brexit process is over, whenever that may be, yes. that... Um, the the interest will you'll you'll probably see it starting to go down again as things. Well, it then raises a sixty-four thousand dollar question to which we don't know the answer, which is what are the long-term consequences That's of true. this? Yeah, I, I suddenly thought that when I was asking the question on our on our politics. Um, and yes, there are various ways of, of of thinking about it. One is that you know, in the end, we somehow or another manage to extricate ourselves from the European Union. Um, and we do so on reasonably acceptable terms, and basically we we plod along in much the same, alongside the European Union in much the same way as Norway manages to plod along reasonably uh, acceptably alongside the European Union with various compromises along the way. Um, and in which case, given that you know we've never you know we have to admit it, we've never been more than seventy detached members of the European Union. We've always been the loose link in the chain. Uh, you know, we've never been enthusiastic members. And, you know, maybe actually being half out rather than half in might prove to be an acceptable long-term position. You did say, you did um, say at one point about how the European project had, had, had sort of failed to make us in the UK feel so European. Identity. We don't have... We've not got the same historical experience of, of, of war and invasion. All these things mark us out. And we have this enormous cultural diaspora that created by the resort of empire, which again provides us with an alternative set of cultural references points to the European Union. So, you know, all, all of those things are true. Um, so, um, but, you know, there, there are then other scenarios we can play, which is, you know, one extreme, we crash out. And indeed, it is as economically disastrous as some people claim crashing out will be. Um, and uh, we are certainly carrying on arguing. Even if we do manage to extricate ourselves in the short term, at least we're going to carry on arguing because we've not negotiated uh, much more than 15% of the issues that have to be settled between us and the European Union. Uh, the long-term uh, relationship has got lots and lots of knotty issues uh, that have to be resolved, some of which affect people's everyday lives like data roaming and European health card, et cetera, et cetera, all of which have yet, yet to be resolved. Um, and um, so, therefore, um, uh, we're certainly going to be arguing about it for a while. Um, and I, one certainly, you know, I, you know, I somewhat suspect whatever happens, Liberal Democrats will never quite give up on the idea of the European Union. And, um, you know, whether or not the Brexit Party survives as getting out, we'll have to see. It will depend on, about, a little bit about, about the terms on which we do so, et cetera. So the issue might still continue, or it might not. And I think, I don't think we know. Um, but, I mean, it, it certainly, I don't think it's going to die entirely. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we've, you know, Europe has a divisive and controversial issue. I mean, it's true of most of our 40 years of membership. Right? It's a relatively short, brief time in the late 80s and early 1990s that Europe was not a controversial issue in our politics. Um, so, you know, one suspects that, you know, if we leave, there are going to be people campaigning to get back in. And if somehow or another don't manage to leave, there'll be certainly people campaigning to get out, and to that extent, at least the argument will continue. One thing I wanted to ask you about is, because um, obviously you do, um, you appear on the on the TV uh, quite a lot um, during the, the elections and results for things and whatnot. I notice actually this time around the European elections, you weren't in the studio. You were sort of on a, there's like a satellite link up, I think. Like you were, you were. Yeah, there are all sorts of different arrangements. I won't bore you with the detail. <laughs> um, I'm sure, yeah. But on the, on the nights when you, you are in the studio, um, you know, working on things in the, in the background and then they'll come over to you. Is there a sense, especially like I'm thinking about the, the Brexit referendum night 
which was obviously like a big deal, probably a lot of people tuning in for that. Is there, is there a certain atmosphere in the studio on those kind of nights? Or, or is it very, is it still very rational? Obviously the BBC is, is supposed to be, um, uh, you know, non-biased non to either side, but obviously I imagine the people working there have different opinions and stuff. So is there, is there what, what's kind of the atmosphere on those oh, nights? Oh, look, I will tell you the only occasion on which um, certainly that, that those who were around me were ever rooting for one particular outcome was in the result in Jeffrey Cox's seat, Torridge in West Devon in 2005. Why were we rooting? Because we, in the exit poll, had forecast that the Tories would get 300 and, what was it, 306 seats or whatever it was, 306, 307 seats, anyway. That's what we said the Tories were going to get. And we knew from what was coming that we needed Geoffrey Cox to win his seat for us to be spot on. Um, so there was, a, there was a professional pleasure in that, thanks to Geoffrey Cox winning his seat, we were therefore going to be spot on in the exit poll forecast as far as the Tory is concerned. Otherwise, broadly, no, look, no, this, is, no, this has to be a, a professional, politically neutral environment in which people are doing a job, and it's a job of trying to, A, explain to the public what's going on, B, to try to find out how the politicians are reacting, and C, indeed, to occasionally to challenge the politicians about you know, their interpretation of the results or what they think that gives them a mandate to do and what not to do, etc. And, you know, um, we, everybody gets treated uh, similarly. Um, and, you know, and insofar as there's ever a tension, I mean, we, you know, there wasn't an exit poll for the, um, uh, for the European referendum, though we were giving lots of hints about what was going to happen. And, you know, there certainly is a, a caution about not, calling, about not calling it too early for the risk of taking part. So there's a tension there. That's just about a concern to get it right. I mean, otherwise, the tension is created by the exit poll on general election night. And is the exit poll right or wrong or not? Um, and obviously, there's a certain amount of tension about that until eventually um, we discover it's not too bad. But, I mean, that's... that's, that's, that's that, 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 that's sort of a, so high profile, et cetera, et cetera. But not, not otherwise, no. I mean, we're not, we're, I mean, you know, I mean, occasionally the drama takes over. I mean, I well remember the 1997 general election when um, I was sitting there and we were analysing the data and I had a, a producer uh, next to me called Sean O'Grady. He works for The Independent these days. And, and you know, this was around the time we had, this was the moment when um, Portillo lost his seat um, et cetera, et cetera. So we got the real drama of 1997 of seeing Tory cabinet ministers losing their seats. People didn't think it could happen because they didn't believe the opinion polls, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, there I well remember, you know, uh, you know, Sean said, well, what can we say now? Well, what can we say? And I said, Sean, sit down, shut up. We're not going to get anything on air for 90 minutes. Nobody cares about the psychology of this election. Just look at the drama. So, sure, occasionally the drama of the night takes over and there was a certain amount of that in 2017 um, because of the way in which you know people didn't thought that Theresa May was going to get a majority and then the shock of the exit poll and then um, uh, you know the fact that you know she was had visibly had indeed been crying as we now know she had been crying before her count etc etc so so, so, you, so you, inevitably one is aware of the drama of the night but you know at the end of the day we're all doing a job and we're, I mean above all um Certainly what I'm trying to do is to keep across the story to try to identify what's going on in order to explain to people you know, what's happened and what to expect and what are the implications we've seen so far. And that, that's kind of a full-time job without worrying about anything else. Um, is, there, is there like nerves around like, oh, did we get it right? Um, or, of course. Or, 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 of course. This reputation, reputation is on the line. Though fortunately these days, thanks to Twitter, you know very, very quickly whether you're going, whether the exit poll is roughly right or not, because I'm well before the results kick in, because um, you know people tweet from the counts, and um, if you follow what's going on, then and you understand the implications of what's being said, you can fairly work out what the story is. Uh, in 2017, there was about a half an hour when we weren't sure, but um, soon as both we were 
following Twitter, and if you're listening to what Laura Kunzberg was saying about what was being said on Twitter, well, I couldn't I couldn't have told you whether whether May had got a majority or not, but I can certainly tell you she didn't have a big majority because uh, there was just too much that was um, moving in that direction. So, uh, Twitter reduces the length of the, the length of the nervousness, but. If, we at the end of the day, we again, we just you you just have to run with it. You know, you you, you collect the data, you analyze it, um, you do your best job, and you have to publish. And you 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 know, our defense at the end of the day would 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 simply be, you know, this is an honest attempt using honest research methods. Um, there's never a guarantee that these things are always going to be right, um, but at least you know we've done a reasonable professional job, and that's all we can do. We won't get. We won't get it right every time. These things are too fragile. Is it, uh, um, I just wondered if, it, if it's a bit like um, when you have uh, weather forecasters predicting the weather and everyone, everyone yeah. criticizes them when they get it wrong, but no one, no yes. one, no one praises them when they get it right. Well, is that, is that, is that it, the it, case with polling? Or? Well, no, we've been in the somewhat fortunate position because, because three times in a row, or argue, arguably four times, but certainly three times in a row, We've come up with a forecast that surprised everybody, uh, which appeared to be in contradiction to what the opinion polls were saying, and then proved at least to be roughly right, although in 2015, uh, definitely with a capital R. Um, we've ended up, people have noticed, they've noticed because they remember suddenly being told something that, which was not what they were expecting to be told, and going, blimey, O'Reilly, you know, and then of course, insofar as you end up getting right, then people, you know, think you have some wonderful magical powers of prediction, et cetera, et cetera, but as all you're doing is to follow following the data that's collected by a particular research method. But, you know, um, so, yeah, so we, we, we are probably now in the very dangerous position of um, being regarded as having got it right when everybody else got it wrong. And, of course, at some point, there's always a risk that the tables will be turned. But there we go. Um, I think last thing I was going to ask you about is I just um, – I looked – I was looking at your What UK Thinks Twitter – um, page yeah. and I was reading about your your new project, your future of prison yeah. project, um, yeah. and I wondered if you could sort of tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, so this is this is um, looking at public attitudes towards some of those aspects of public policy that are currently primarily determined by EU competencies. But if we leave the European Union, depending a little bit about. On, on, on the terms and conditions under which we do so. But in theory, at least, once we leave the European Union, we will be able to do our own thing and to set our own policy. And um, what we're not, because this is a subject where it's been a EU competence, it's not necessarily been the subject of a great deal of public debate. Rather than just doing a survey, um, I'm doing something with a guy called Jim Fishkin who developed this technique called deliberative polling whereby rather we actually um, bring people together to deliberate. It's citizens' assembly of a kind, but using it much more as a research tool rather than trying to find a consensus. Um, so, it's, uh, we, 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 so people are, uh, you know, we try to recruit a random sample of people who are willing to talk uh, about the subject for a day and a half at the weekend, um, and um, who are in advance are given briefing materials about the subject matter and the various policy choices we're putting before them. Um, we survey them before the weekend. Um, they then get the chance to talk to each other in small groups about the subject matter. And the groups can then pose questions to the experts that we have that we then have a plenary session in which we can talk to the experts. And we're doing this for three subjects. Immigration and obvious post-Brexit public policy, uh, food policy and regulation. So this is farm payments, um, uh, GMOs, um, glyphosate, all areas where the European Union has been active and where again the decisions to be made, and then also um, consumer regulation. So um, roaming, um, uh, flight rights if the flight is cancelled, incandescent light bulbs, vacuum cleaners, microplastics, um, some of these areas where, again, consumer regulation has been going on both at UK and at EU level and getting people's views um, about that and what, what we should do. Um, and then we will interview them afterwards. And we, the aim is to try to identify um, who, uh, who changes their attitudes, why they change them, etc. because it's, it's a research technique, but also to try and get some idea 
of where public opinion might stand if indeed it were to get the opportunity to discuss and deliberate on some of these topics. So you can also think of it as a process that speeds up the process of debate that might go on more broadly in society by just bringing people together and getting them to focus on it for a while. So that's what it's about. So it's trying to inform public policy for Brexit. And we'll be hoping to give some indication to um, uh, to civil servants and to politicians as to what the public might actually want in these areas. So, of course, you know, uh, you know this is no longer just doing the you know, the high-level stuff about do we want free trade or end freedom of movement. It's also much more of the nitty-gritty nitty of things that affect people's lives, like, you know, the, the light bulbs they can fit, you know, the food they can eat, etc. which the European Union is, also has an important impact on. So that's what – and we're doing it two ways. We're doing it online, and we're doing it online at the end of this month. And then next year we'll do it again, uh, assuming Brexit's still on the, on the agenda – and we will do it face-to-face because there's also a methodological thing. So we're also using it to see can you do this kind of deliberative work in an online environment so people, rather than people having to travel to a central location. So this one's being done online and the next one is being done face-to-face and we'll compare the impact of the two. I did want to ask you if referendums are a bad idea, but I feel like that's, <laughs> that's an hour-long conversation in itself. Well, no, I'll give you a short answer. A short answer, I mean... Um, I'll give you two answers. One is you should really only hold referendums when you know what the answer is going to be. So they are potentially useful as legitimating legitimating mechanisms. I would essentially take, I mean, there are two areas where I think referendums are the only way in which you can satisfactorily resolve issues. One are indeed to do with issues of sovereignty. So if at the end of the day the people of Scotland do or do not wish to leave the United Kingdom, if the people of Northern Ireland do or do not wish to join the Republic, if the United Kingdom does or does not wish to share its sovereignty with the European Union. So these questions of who should have the right to rule and what should be the territorial organisation of that rule, I think you have to use the referendum because that's something where you have to be clear that this is about the legitimacy of the governing arrangements. So that's one area. The other area where I would, would use referendums is I, I don't think we should allow politicians to wholly determine the rules by which they are elected. And then if you want to change the electoral system, and indeed, you know, in, insofar as in the UK, we've begun to develop a bit of a convention whereby actually we use referendums when making major changes to constitutional arrangements. I think that's not such a bad idea. But as I say, ideally, you only hold the referendum when you already know what the answer is going to be. Holding referendums on uh, subjects where public opinion is divided in, the, uh, in these areas um, uh, can end up leaving you with a, you know, uh, an unresolved debate. So the Scottish devolution referendum of 1997 is a success because we all knew what the answer is going to be. The problem with the independence referendum of 2014, well, the UK government thought it knew what the answer was going to be and got it wrong. And equally in 2016, it thought it knew what answer it could get and again it got it wrong. uh, Cameron assumed he could pull off Howard Wilson's trick but failed to do so. And the rest is history. So there you have it, Sir John Curtis. My thanks to him for um, for his time and for joining me on the podcast. Some very interesting, insightful conversation. I think you will agree. Um, thank you, the listener, for joining me this week. Um, I realised at the start of the podcast, I, as much as I'm trying to avoid being Alan Partridge in any sense. Um I I did do a sort of strath glide earlier in the podcast and I thought about re recording and editing it out, but quite frankly, I didn't do that. Um so I don't know if you want to call that lazy or 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 is it just honest? Am I just being honest with the listener? I'm not trying to edit myself too much. Um and and you know it's authentic 
And I realise the more I talk, the more I am just slipping into Partridge. But hey, if anyone wants to give me a local radio job, I'm up for that. Um, anyway, thank you for listening once again. Um, join me next time for another fantastic conversation with another interesting individual. Um, and yeah, take care of yourselves. Have fun. Uh, enjoy... Well, I would say enjoy the summer weather, but here in the UK, and I realise not all my listeners are from the UK. Um, hello to everyone else across the world. But here in the UK, the weather is, is rather abysmal. But enjoy what you can. But for now, I've been James Alban, and this is The Last Line. That's why we maintain auto liability insurance on your behalf, so you have peace of mind right from the start. What moves me? That's a big question. Definitely family. I just want them to know I do this for them, and that I'm okay when I'm out there. Uber. What moves you moves us. Get started with auto liability coverage when you sign up to drive with us at uber.com drive. Experiences driving with Uber may vary.